That song is a musical invitation to do what Psalm 55 verse 22 says. Listen. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. That invitation is repeated all across the Bible. Sometimes with those very words, other times through other pictures and metaphors. Every trial and every blessing is an opportunity and an invitation from God to turn to Him. So let's just be quiet with the Lord. And if you've come in with some burdens, take Him up on it. The psalmist said, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. Maybe you're a little tired of carrying your own burden. I know I am. I had burdens thrust on me this week that are too big for me. I carried them for a little while, and I felt like they would crush me. And then I remembered that I have a permanent invitation to turn to the Father and throw all of those burdens on Him. And Jesus says, the Gospels, not only do I, am I invited to run to Him, the Gospel says that He runs toward me. How humbling, how wonderful is that? So I'm just going to give you a moment to yourself. Name that burden, turn to Him, and give it to Him. Let's pray. Father, you know. You know my burdens in my heart. And in spite of that weight, and in spite of the fear and the, the forgetfulness, the sinfulness, you can see in me at any moment. You lovingly extend your grace, your mercy. You invite me and you invite everyone in this room to turn to you. So we cast our burdens on you, whatever they may be, knowing that the, you are sufficient when we are not, that you are strong when we are weak, that you are good and holy and merciful and just when we are sinful and weak and forgetful. So take our burdens and give us the good grace to listen to you, Jesus, and do as you ask. In your name I pray, amen. A few years ago, a lifelong friend surprised me. He's, he's, actually, he's actually kind of a big deal. Uh, God's really blessed him. And he has literally traveled the world representing a Christian organization. We're very good friends for a good reason. He's everything anyone would hope to find in a friend. He's patient and loving and kind. He thinks my jokes are funny. That helps so much. <laughs> and he shocked me because he really started reading the Gospels slowly and carefully. He's known them all his life. He's taught them. Years ago, he taught in my place. And the upshot of his comment to me was, I'm really paying attention to Jesus. And it makes me, he makes me really uncomfortable. I love him, but I'm not sure that I, I like everything he says. Have you had that experience? See, because if you've only heard what I call the Instagram Jesus, <laughs> it's all good. You can cherry pick the life and the character of Jesus and 
whittle him down to a Jesus you like all the time. And in Luke's gospel, where we've come now, if you've been taking me up on my invitation and reading ahead as we go through the gospel of Luke, if you've already read the rest of Luke chapter 14, you understand my friend's discomfort. There's no sensible thinking person that could read what Jesus said and shrug their shoulders. That's actually the point. If you take him seriously, you won't explain away what he's saying too quickly and act like he doesn't mean it. Because his words are alarming. They actually seem sharply out of character for him. Because Jesus taught us more than anyone to love one another. As he died on the cross, he spoke seven times according to the Gospels. One of those times was to make sure that one of his disciples took care of Jesus' mother. This is the most selfless, sacrificial, courageous, humble, loving person who has ever walked the earth because God himself is now walking the earth. And shortly before dying, Jesus will tell the twelve in her Well, Judas was not a true disciple, but he's going to tell the apostles that the mark of their discipleship is their love for one another. That is and should be the emblem, the signature of Christians. When I was a kid, we used to sing a little chorus, they will know us by our love. Not always true. Sometimes we're unchristian and anti-Christian in the way we speak of one another and the way we speak of others not Jesus. He is literally love embodied, love made flesh, love in human form. But that's not all he is. And that's why what he says in Luke chapter 14 is so shocking. And there's something else I'm going to discover as soon as I start reading this next address from Jesus to the large crowds that were following him around. I'm going to discover that Jesus would have been terrible at marketing in contemporary America because he has started to gain what in business they call market share. He's winning. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious experts in the law, are losing market share and Jesus appears to be gaining it because large crowds are following him around. Look with me in Luke chapter 14. And we've reached verse 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. Isn't that good? Thousands of people probably following Jesus. It must be thousands because he was trying to get a day off. And 5,000 men plus women and children showed up to hear him. Now he's out in public. He's doing the work of God. He's showing who God is. He's proving that He actually is the Messiah, that they were all promised in their Scriptures that they had heard about Saturday by Saturday in the synagogue. And it appears to be working. And there's not a Christian leader, there's not a pastor in the world who wouldn't be thrilled with what that verse reports, that great crowds are coming to hear about Jesus. So He turns to them. And he says something surprising. 
Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You ever seen that? You like it? No, nobody likes it. How could you? And what does it mean? How could a man in the agonies of Roman crucifixion, which was designed and perfected by the Romans as an instrument of public, state-funded, state-sponsored terror to people they had conquered, to make it as agonizing and brutal and humiliating as humanly possible? Crucifixion was eventually outlawed because it horrified the senses and the conscience. And in the middle of all that, Jesus turned and spoke, which would have been agonizing, to John, the disciple, to saying, take care of my mom. And he calls his disciples friends, and he says, no greater love does anyone have than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And he says, he's the good shepherd who's going to meet the wolf. He's not a hireling. He's a good shepherd, and when the flock is attacked, he will willingly step forward and fight and die if necessary to protect them. But now he's got great crowds following him, and surely this is the time to capitalize and say, welcome everybody, grab a name tag and some coffee and some donuts, let's all get acquainted, let's talk about what we can do together. That's what I'm doing. If you're new and we haven't met, if you want to talk to me about something, I hope you'll take the time. My email's in the bulletin. Practically everybody in town has my cell phone. Everybody's welcome, okay? (laughs) I really want to connect what's going on here. If anyone does not hate, he says, all that conscience and culture and upbringing and natural human instinct tells you to hold dear, if he doesn't hate them, he can't follow me. He can't be my disciple. And he's actually going to not only double, but triple down from there. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see my friend's conundrum? He paid attention, maybe for the first time in his life, truly listened to Jesus, not to explain it away, but to take it seriously, and it rocked him. It actually, we met about it several times. It took him about six months, I think, to get through it. 
He's a better and stronger Christian now than he was then, and that's the point. And to put it in contemporary language, I think what Jesus would ask us today, if I may suggest a word picture, is this, when it comes to Jesus, are you a fan or a disciple? And ask yourself that question, because here's what I've learned. Jesus has a lot of fans and not many disciples. That's America. We are a fan-making factory. Not so much on discipleship. What's the difference? A fan is in it as long as it's good. Later today, a game will be played. I don't know if you've heard. (laughs) And there's going to be a lot of fans. And when it's over, about half the crowd will be severely disappointed. And some guys will go internet famous for throwing their TVs off the balcony or or doing some other (laughs) almost certainly drunken foolishness. But then they'll get on with life. And they'll say, as my sons did, as Cowboys fans, Dad, why did you teach us to care about this team? It's meant nothing but pain. (laughs) But we're fans. And believe me, since 1996, from 96 forward, the Cowboys have been disappointing me. It's been sad, but it hasn't wrecked my life. I haven't filed for divorce or quit my job or burned my car or done any other self-destructive thing just because the Cowboys lost. I'm just a fan, not truly a disciple. A disciple is one who has taken on a master, a teacher, who is an apprentice, a learner, Someone who has come to another and consciously chosen to put him under the care and the direction and the authority of that teacher so that the disciple may become like him. And Jesus is being harsh with his statements because he knows something that is not immediately apparent to me. There's a difference in the crowd. There will be a few disciples, but there are many more fans, so it has ever been. So if I may, in what I hope is a short sermon, because this is heavy stuff, and you don't want to sit with it too long or it'll really kill you, I just want to walk through Jesus' terms and turn them back on myself, turn His terms into questions for us, so that we may do what He's telling us to do and count the cost. Here's the first question. If your family made you choose, would you reject Jesus for them? That's really what he's saying. In stark terms, Jesus says, let me read his actual words again. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, that's really important, he cannot be my disciple. 
So the question we're facing squarely is, does being a disciple of Jesus mean hating everybody, including yourself? And the answer obviously is no. Jesus is not trying to turn people suicidal with such deep self-hatred and self-loathing that they despair of life. Jesus is not trying to destroy families and children and fathers and mothers and the unions in marriage that brought them together. He's actually, in the rest of his life, caring a great deal about that, teaching about marriage, actually on one occasion in Mark 10, chewing out his disciples because the disciples had the misguided notion that he was too important to spend time with kids. And he said, instead, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. And he took them up in his arms, Mark says, and he blessed them. So Jesus is not inviting you and commanding you to literally hate your mom and dad and your siblings and even your children and actually to hate yourself. He's actually making a very relevant and timely first century question that continues on to this day. If you had to choose between Jesus and the people you love in this life, who would you go with? Because that's exactly what's going to happen, not only to Jesus, but to everyone who listens to him. Family pressure will be applied, and for love of family, many will turn their backs on Jesus. And I I would not ask the question publicly to stir up any old wounds and put you in an embarrassing spot, but I bet if I asked If any of you have ever been put in a position between choosing love and loyalty to family and love and loyalty to Jesus, I would guess between 15 or 20% of the people in this crowd would say, yes, I've stood at that crossroads. Happens all the time outside of the United States. A young man in our church in Mexico was told in no uncertain terms that attending the church was fine, but baptism would break the family. And should he be baptized, he should understand that he would be dead to his family. And he did what Jesus commanded and was baptized anyway and returned to his home to find all of his belongings packed on the street waiting for him. That's real. That happens. Thankfully, it doesn't happen so often in the United States. We face a different kind of pressure. And that is, with our own family that know we are Christians, are we willing to risk tension or difficulty or maybe even the rupture of that relationship, not because they want us to choose against Jesus, but are we willing to open our mouth and speak about Jesus to our family? That's harder. Have you noticed? I don't have much extended family. I guess God in His wisdom decided there shouldn't be too many of us. (laughs) But I have a few that that are far from Christ, and I just have to tell you, even as a, I hope, mature Christian, and even as a pastor, what I would boldly say from a pulpit or someone I just met is much harder when it's family. And there you stand at the crossroads asking yourself, if you had to choose between Jesus and family, what would you do? He's not done. 
Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, good. We're back on kind of Instagram ground. That sounds a whole lot easier. If you think that sounds easier, it's only because you with me have adopted a sanitized version of what a cross is. A cross in the first century to Jesus was only an instrument of execution. It's not jewelry. We named our church Cross Point because in this increasingly secular age, 50 years from now, if the Lord doesn't return and the church is still here, we want our very name and our logo to tell people that we're Christians. The cross is that closely identified with Christ, but we've kind of beautified it. Isn't that nice? See that? It's not ugly, right? You may have a cross somewhere in your jewelry or in your home. No one in the first century would have done that. Give you an idea of it, it would be like hanging a noose on your wall in the first century. It would be like decorating your house with a bloody guillotine. Guillotines and nooses only serve one purpose, to kill people. Guillotines and nooses at least do it quickly. The cross did it slowly. See, Jesus knows where he's headed. He knows he's on the way to death. And he's echoing the words of a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who resisted the Nazis and paid for it with his own life. Bonhoeffer famously said, when Jesus calls a man to follow him, he bids him to come and die. In other words, you're trading lives with him. You're trading earthly life for eternal life. And the question specifically for, from Jesus here is, are you willing to keep suffering for Jesus? That's what it means to take up the cross. To willingly embark on a path of suffering, following Him, trusting that He knows where He's going, and in the end, it will be good. But as it says in another gospel, you take up that cross how many times? Daily. Daily. See, because almost anyone will accept some measure of suffering so long as they know what it's for and when it will end. That's why women have babies. They know it's not going to be a five-year gestation process. And at the end, there's a baby. That's why people go through training and go to college and do hard things. Because we know that they're suffering for a time, and in the end, the reward is good. When you truly start following Jesus, He may go into places that He does not explain Himself along the way, and He asks you to trust Him that He knows the way and that the end is good. And the question specifically is, are you willing to keep doing that? And what might that look like? Well, in our age, just warn you, One year, five years, ten years from now, it may look like you being a Christian and making choices to honor Jesus make you ever more the oddball at your work. Have you felt it yet? I have. Things have changed. The culture has turned. There's a tide going against him. And the invitation and the question from Jesus to the crowd is, are you willing to keep coming after me 
and suffering. There's another kind of suffering that's much more quiet. Are you willing to take up the daily disciplines of reading Scripture and praying to God so that you will consciously become more like Christ? That's not painful in the moment, but the daily part of it is challenging. Chuck Swindoll famously said, the trouble with the Christian life is it's so daily. Just every day. Be like Him, act like Him, choose like Him, speak like Him, love as He does, forgive as He does, be as clear as He is. It's not easy. Are you willing to embark upon it? This Bible invites you every day to actually hear from God. Prayer is a wide-open invitation to bring Him all of your troubles and also to surrender all of your dreams. And the cross speaks of death to self, and that's what Jesus is asking. And then, just in case we weren't getting it, he gives two really sharp word pictures. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You ever seen that in construction? They put the stuff up, and there it is, just the bones for years. And it's an eyesore to the whole city. And oh, what an embarrassment that would be if you started to remodel your house and tore out two walls and then ran out of money. So you got the tarps up. And it's so embarrassing because the neighbors are looking, when are you going to be done? I don't know, I ran out of money. That's the world that Jesus wants them to see, and then he makes it kind of a life and death situation, not just social embarrassment. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. None of us, I'm sure, probably are military tacticians, but do you like the odds? We're outnumbered double. Can you win in those conditions? Maybe. If you have certain advantages, you have surprise, you plan the battlefield, well, maybe you can win, but what would a wise king do? I better figure this out. He's got two dudes with swords and arrows for every one of mine. I better figure out whether I can win or they'll kill us all and then come and take our city. And if not, Jesus says, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What's Jesus saying here? Count the cost before you follow me. That's so unusual that you probably haven't heard it in an evangelistic sermon. What's the invitation? Come to Jesus, life will be awesome. And people say, well, I would love to have an awesome life. I'll be right down. And then they start following Jesus, and all the things that Jesus not only predicted but promised start happening, and life starts getting hard because your friends don't think you're cool anymore. And as it says elsewhere in Scripture, they think it's strange that you no longer join them in their foolishness and their wickedness, and it starts to get tough. And Jesus, ever truthful. See, when we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, this is part of it. He is the truth. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. 
He says, I'm willing to take you on to eternal life. Just make sure you want to come first because it won't be easy. I'll pay for everything. I'll lay down my life for your sins. I'll pay for everything. Your part will be gratefully to follow me. And there will be times when you want to turn back. And I know things are changing because it's 2020 and almost every week I deal with someone who has turned back, is thinking about turning back, or is heartbroken because someone they loved started out apparently following Jesus and said, that's as far as I'm going, no more. It's real. And all I'm doing is reporting what Jesus said. If you're going to follow after Him, count the cost. Make sure. Be resolved. Commit on the front side that you're going to go with Him no matter what. And then, and Jesus is such a masterful teacher. See, a masterful teacher, when giving a lesson, never staggers at the end. The authoritative textbook on preaching, in my opinion, has a chapter entitled this, Start with a Bang and Quit All Over. Which is a very colorful way of saying, don't limp toward the end of the sermon. Like one poor pastor I heard in Mexico, having no idea how to finish, spoke ever more slowly until he said in Spanish, no hay más palabras. He said, there are no more words. And that was the end of the sermon. It was like watching a toy wind down, right? Clunk, 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 clunk. Jesus isn't like that. He knew what it meant to start with the bang and to quit all over because the crowds are following him. And he says, thanks for coming along. I just want to make it clear. If you don't hate your family, you can't come with me. That's a bang. And the terms are going to be spelled out, and they're going to understand at the crossroads he's, he's explaining to them. But then he says, if you actually do follow me, there's going to be daily suffering and learning to be like me. And see, here's the thing. By the time you're done with church today after this super encouraging sermon... Later today, you may be tested whether you're going to act and think and choose like a Christian. And taking up your cross is going to be real, probably for some of you at least, today. And Jesus doesn't care about market share. Why? Because He doesn't want fans. He wants disciples. See the difference? Because a fan always leaves. A fan, when he's finally had enough, says, okay, we're good. Thank you. I'm done. Never giving that team another dollar. Burning my jerseys. Becoming a Rams fan, whatever it is, whatever that looks like to you. There's an active conversation in my house about doing that very thing. Because they're not from Texas, they're from here. I may stand alone. Jesus isn't looking for fans. 
And listen, just before I'm done, a word of comfort. If you're just figuring this out, Jesus is patient and loving, and He wants to explain Himself and what He offers to you. But please understand, He's not begging. His terms are His terms. He will not change them. He will not change them because He really is the Word, the truth, the life. He is the Word of God made flesh. He is the way to the Father. He is truth itself, and He is eternal life. He is totally worth it, but really following Him is not easy for anyone. It wasn't easy in the first century. It's never really been easy, and in the 21st century, it's going to get harder. That's why he's saying, count the cost before you follow me. But I was telling you, he's going to finish with a bang. Because he says at the end, verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce, what? All that he has cannot be my disciple. Anything else? Family? Comfort and everything. What's he specifically talking about here? He's talking about money. And he said much more famously in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve God in money. Money, that terrible taskmaster, that terrible Lord will call out to you all your life, love me, trust me, I'll take care of you. And Jesus says... Ignore money. Hate money. Because Jesus said you'll either love one master and hate the other. That's always the way it is. You can't really have two bosses. If they're both sovereign, you cannot serve them both. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when I mentioned that for the first time without really thinking yet of the connection, did you hear the utter lack of enthusiasm? When I said we get to give, is it a get to or a have to? For the real disciple, it's a get to kind of situation. And I'm not talking as an expert, I'm talking as a fellow disciple and a fellow struggler who looks at everything in my life, including my health and my time and my family, and counts the cost. question here is, are you going to hold on to your possessions or hold on to Jesus? Because you can't do both. May I submit to you that in the 21st century, a radical reappraisal of what it means to be a Christian is to understand that the American dream is just that. It's an American dream. It's not the dream of Jesus for His disciples. And if God has blessed you greatly in this world, You don't have to hate those belongings, but you have to surrender them every day to Him and say, with all that you've given me, what does it look like for you to be Lord over this house, over this car, over this job, over this income, over this insurance and health care and benefits? Because they won't last forever. And only the things done for Christ will matter forever. 
He is the eternal Word of God, crafting disciples who will make eternal impact and suffer and cry their way through this life to receive an eternal reward that is absolutely, massively, incomparably, inexplicably better than anything that tempted them to hold on to instead of hold on to Him. And there's not one martyr of the Christian faith in all of human history, many of them in Mexico where I grew up, who has arrived in the presence of Jesus in glory and said it wasn't worth it. Years ago in southern Mexico, they were cutting people's tongues out for naming Christ. You want to talk about Jesus? We'll make sure you can't. They were first cutting off water. And if that didn't drive them out in that terribly hot, arid climate, they were setting fire to villages and occasionally torturing and killing some men and women and leaving the remains on display as a warning. If you want Christ, this is what's going to happen to you. You and I don't have those stakes, thank God. We still live in this amazingly blessed free country for what we're doing is legally and constitutionally enshrined as one of our liberties simply for being in the nation. It's amazing. Our temptation is so much more subtle. To just read magazines of lifestyle and money and income and what it looks like to enjoy the good life and surrender to the subtle idea that that American version of what real life really looks like is what we should be living for. And such Christians will arrive in the presence of Jesus by His grace and be shocked by the difference at the judgment seat of Christ between what could have been and what they actually chose. And Jesus is being this clear and this uncomfortable to spare you the trouble and the embarrassment and to make sure that you spend your life on something that actually matters, including your relationships, including your job, including your giving. What Jesus is trying to tell us is simply this, to live for Jesus, you have to die to self. That's the choice. It always has been and it always will be. And my plea and my prayer for you and for myself is that this morning we will choose Jesus. Let's pray. I want to give you just a moment to run your mind over family and friendships, over your willingness to consciously, intentionally have some pain and difficulty in your life to learn to become like Jesus, to witness for Jesus, and even to consider what you're doing with your money. Does all of that make you look like a fan or a disciple? And talk to Jesus about what you find and ask Him to make you truly a disciple. Maybe you've been putting him off, and this morning is the morning you need to become a Christian. Could I invite you to call out to him and surrender and say, Jesus, not my family, not my friends, not my career, not my money, not my own dreams of what I wanted to be. I'm, I'm giving, putting you in charge of all of that more than anything else. I want you.
If you're counting the cost and choosing Christ this morning, follow after Him, to come after Him, tell Him so. And I would ask that you would let us know on the card that's in your bulletin. Let us know that you've put your, set your foot on the path to follow Christ because we want to go with you. Lord, may we all be disciples. Thank you for your clarity. It's hard. It's very humbling. Helps me see my own hypocrisy. Help me be a disciple. Make us, Jesus, truly into your disciples, we pray in your name. Amen.